Welcome to Make Me Your Voice with Pastor David Bartowell. These messages are intended to deepen your faith and trust in a living God who speaks to us with hope and reason. Today's message comes to us from the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. Good morning. We're setting up for the Ten Commandments today. We're going to talk about the God who rules. We're going to talk about what do the Ten Commandments then mean to us as Christians, as New Testament believers. But first, we're going to look at what they meant to Israel. So as we go through this, the Ten Commandments, number one, the Ten Commandments were given as a covenant, a covenant between God and His people, Israel. Now, let's catch up, because if you haven't been here through the sermon series Exodus, Israel has now been rescued out of Egypt. God has rescued them. They're now wandering in the wilderness only a few months now. So it hasn't been the full 40 years yet. And Israel is already complaining and grumbling about not having water and food. And they're upset about Moses being their leader. They want to recruit another leader. And then God begins introducing them to rules and regulations of how they should live. He already talked about the Sabbath. And now he's put them engraved in the Ten Commandments. And God's been leading Israel now. They've come to the Mount Sinai in the desert. And it's there where he will deliver the Ten Commandments. So grab your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 19. So we're going to look at some of these scriptures here. We're going to start here in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 19, where it says, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so it's been three months, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord, Yahweh, called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. So it's interesting because it's the house of Jacob, which Jacob is the name before it was changed to Israel. So the house of Jacob, tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did. So this is all what God has done to the Egyptians and how I bore you or carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. So what we see here, especially in verse 5 of Exodus 19, God specifically says that it's a covenant. And he says, if, here's where it gets interesting. God, when he gives a promise, there's usually a premise to the promise. So he says to Israel, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. The covenant was like a will. God is giving them a promise, their present and their future. But he starts out as, if you keep my covenant, if you keep my commands, then, so the premise is, if you keep my commands, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So in other words, even though I made everything and all the people in the world I'm calling you out as a nation because I promised to Abraham that I would do that. And you're going to be mine, my special possession. 
Now, did Israel keep their part of the bargain? (laughs) No. So how does this work then? This is known as like a bilateral covenant. The new covenant that we live under, which is given by the blood of Jesus, is more of a unilateral covenant. In other words, there's only one thing we need to do to get into that covenant with God through his son. What is that? Believe in God's son. So that's the if. But once you're in the covenant, you're not being thrown out of the family (laughs) because you have received God's spirit and you are now a different person. You're a new creation in Christ. That's what that means. So since Israel didn't live up to their bargain, what happened? Well, many of them got left out of the promised land because they didn't believe God. And if you look at the Bible, do we read in the history of Israel when we're reading through, because it's historical of what's happening with Israel, we see all kinds of chaos. We all see kinds of sin. We see all kinds of mistakes. We see bad behavior. In fact, they had to be sent into captivity in Babylon different places because God was disciplining his kids because he loves them. Well, here's how you got to look at it. God still has a plan for Israel. He's not done with Israel yet. That's through the Abrahamic covenant. But we have to see the true Israel as what's known as the remnant. You know what a remnant is? A remnant is a piece of something that's left. There were people in Israel that believed, right? That had faith in God but not all of them. Well, guess what? There's some people in the world today that have faith in God through Jesus Christ. We're called Christians. We're called believers. We're called the church. So guess what? We have become part of that remnant of believers that started way back with Abraham. So the church, the true church, believers in Christ are part of the remnant that got saved and delivered, and all we have to do is believe. So the covenant theme is a major theme in the Bible. The Abrahamic covenant was given to Abraham, included land, it included a nation, the remnant, and included the seed or the descendants. And in Galatians 3.16, Paul writes who the seed is, who is the seed, Jesus Christ. And those who are in Christ are born again by the Holy Spirit, and we are now that seed. So it's a continuous story. We're part of this story. Now, like I said, the Abrahamic covenant was different. It was more of a unilateral covenant. All Abraham had to do is believe. Well, that's how we are. All we have to do is believe in Jesus Christ, and we get to be a part of God's new covenant in Christ Jesus. Now, like I said, Israel failed miserably. We fail miserably. So guess what? This is the greatest news. This is incredible. This is like a huge piece of the gospel, which means good news. Look what Jesus says about himself. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. What did he come to do? To fulfill it. Jesus is the only person that ever lived in the history of the world that fulfilled God's law. And guess what? When we place our faith in Christ, it's like we have become in Christ, which means it's as if we have fulfilled the law. 
Now, raise your hand. Have you kept the Ten Commandments, every single one of them? No. And later on, we'll see it even goes deeper than that because Jesus gives a whole Sermon on the Mount about the different things that we do. It's not about that. And I want to show you the history of what's happening here. We have Abraham. He was credited as righteous before God because he had faith. He believed what God said. Now, here we have the Mosaic Covenant, which is what we're talking about today, which is enfolded within the Ten Commandments. That's called the law. That, Jesus said, I fulfill the law. But in the New Testament, there's still promises to Abraham that are not completely fulfilled, mostly having to do with land and mostly having to do with Jesus Christ reigning on the throne, which is part of the Davidic covenant as well. So the Bible is a whole story, and it involves the covenants that God puts in place, because we can't do it. God gives us these promises, these covenants. So are the Ten Commandments still applicable today? Yes, in the sense that they reveal incredible things about God. They talk about how we should live. In fact, I think it's on the Supreme Court building. I don't know if they still have them up there, the Ten Commandments. We've adopted a lot of this biblical covenant stuff into our nation. Do we live up to it? No, we fall short. Here's what's happened. The Ten Commandments are still the Ten Commandments. If you break the Ten Commandments, you've broken God's law. But the difference is for a believer, the Ten Commandments are still there but our relationship to the Ten Commandments changed. We're not under God's wrath and punishment because we've broken them. We're under God's grace because Christ fulfilled them. Does that make sense? Romans 5.1, read it with me. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? That you have peace with God? I mean, people are struggling their whole life wondering if God loves me or not. You can have peace with God by trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, nevertheless, even though it's impossible to keep God's law, it was Israel's desire to keep God's law. In Exodus 19.8, they say, all the people answered together and said, we're in. Count on me, man. I'm in. They fell short. We all do. So that's the first. The Ten Commandments were given as a covenant. Next, the Ten Commandments were given to a nation. Israel is now a nation. Started with Abraham and his kids and then their kids to Jacob, who became Israel. He had 12 tribes or 12 families, and now they're a nation. So what's a nation? What distinguishes a nation from just people? Okay, well, here it is. The Hebrew word for nation is goyim. And it's a broad term for a grouping of people which incorporates a population with language. So there's a similar language to a nation. There's genetic ties. There's a government and usually land, which will include a border, mostly for protection. So when we're trying to define what's a nation, these are things that are part of a nation. Israel was a young nation. And they're finding their way through the wilderness. Let's continue now with Exodus 19. And we'll start at verse 6. God says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. 
So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe or trust in you, Moses, because you're my spokesman, you're my prophet. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So there's a two-way communication going on here. And it's important because when God's speaking to Moses, he's speaking through Moses as well. So we have this verse, Exodus 19.6, which is an important verse. I just read it. It says, you shall be to me, God speaking, a kingdom. This is the very first time the word kingdom is used in Scripture. But we see God's kingdom from creation, right? But what is he saying? You're going to be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They serve God and they shine the light of God to the world. And a holy nation, what's being holy? Set apart. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So this is who they are. They're a kingdom with a king. So this implies that God's the king of priests. So they're going to serve me and they're going to shine my light to the world. And they're going to be set apart as different. And that's part of the Ten Commandments that's going to be different because the other nations didn't get these commandments delivered to them. So Israel set apart. And we see Jesus when he shows up on the scene, which is another incredibly important statement that Jesus says when he shows up on the scene in the New Testament. And in Mark 1.15, he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is in your midst or at hand. So what is he saying? I am the personification of God's kingdom. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you know that we have a king? He's our God. He's our Lord. And do you know that we are a kingdom of priests set apart to represent and demonstrate God's kingdom on earth? How do we know that? Read this verse with me, 1 Peter 2.9. But you, stop a second. Who's he saying but you? Who's you? He's speaking to the church, believers. Okay, go on. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Isn't this exactly what God just told Israel to do and be? We are part of the remnant of Israel, the church. I hear people say, we want to disconnect or unhitch from the Old Testament. That's half the story. You can't unhitch from your own people. That's dumb. It's one story. It's not two different stories. The New Testament's the continuation of the Old Testament. So Israel was set apart, and we're set apart to worship God, to serve Him, and to demonstrate His kingdom to the earth. Third, the Ten Commandments were given as instruction. This is called the Torah. You heard Torah? Oftentimes translated as law, but it can be instruction. So Exodus 24, 12 says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the Torah and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So the Torah is the law, which are commandments 
given for instruction. So what's the purpose? What's the main purpose of the Ten Commandments? Instruction. Aren't you glad that God gives instruction? If you're a teacher, what if you had like no ground rules and you just said do whatever you want? That'd be mass chaos. I mean, that'd be nuts. Thank God we have instruction and ground rules. In Exodus 18, 20, it says, Now this is Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, telling him, Teach them, the people of Israel, God's decrees. That literally can mean, Teach them what is engraved, and instructions, the Torah, and show them or make known to them the way they are supposed to live. This is about how we're supposed to live. Now, would you agree with me that without instructions and without ground rules, we'd have mass chaos? This is why laws are important. Because if you don't have them, and Israel's a nation without social order, it's chaotic. So when my wife, Deborah, and I, and we started our family, we discussed the ground rules and the instructions and the laws that we were going to have for our family, how we would operate. This church has certain laws and ground rules and instructions based on the Bible, but also a covenant for those who become partners. We decide that we're going to sign an agreement, a covenant between each other, and we have certain decrees, engraved things, that we all expect to believe and treat each other a certain way. So Israel's a family. Israel has a father. His name is Yahweh. Israel is a nation, and they have a king, Yahweh. Therefore, it makes sense that Yahweh would give rules and regulations to learn from. And it's not to, like, spoil your fun. It's to show you how we should live so that we have a fulfilling life. So Moses was a prophet and a mediator, like a priest between God's people and God. And in Exodus 19, 7, it says, So Moses came and call the elders of the people, and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him to speak. I love watching good biblical movies. Imagine the movie is building up. They've been rescued. God's going to show up on a mountain and speak words that not only Moses hears, that Israel will hear. And this is the covenant, the Mosaic covenant or the covenant of Sinai, it includes the Ten Commandments. And in verse 19, Exodus 19, 18, it says, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. Why? Because the king showed up. This is why God said to Moses the first time he met him, God speaks to Moses, take your shoes off because you're in my presence. Okay, this is the same God that created all the heavens in the universe and lives in a timeless kingdom that's from eternity, that there's no time. He has no beginning and no end. And this is the same God that shows up today as we worship Him and spend time in His Word by His Holy Spirit and loves you and wants to communicate with you and wants to have a relationship with you. This is the same God. So Exodus 19, verses 21 through 25, says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to a gaze. He already told them before. We didn't read this part. He said, Moses, don't tell them. They can't even look at me. Can't even look to the mountain. They'll die because I'm so holy. 
So he's reminding them again because obviously, like kids, they want to look into the sun. You know, when they say, wear the glasses, you know, you'll go blind. Okay, they don't listen. We don't listen. So Moses, go back down. Tell them not to look at me. Can't really see him, but look up the mountain because they'll die. And let the priests who come near to the Lord, these were Aaron and his sons, consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. And they already spent three days getting consecrated. Still, they need to be careful. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you warned us, saying, set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them or kill them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So this is the boundaries of a holy God. And that's why it's so incredible that the Bible says that we can go directly to God's throne room because we go through Christ. Otherwise, we'd be killed. We'd like die on the spot. So now we have the giving of the Ten Commandments. We're going to go through these. I want you to realize something, which I'm sure you know, but a lot of people might not know. The Ten Commandments are in this passage, Exodus 20, and they're not listed one, two, three, you know, with the stone tablet that we're used to. So I want you to see how this flows within the passage. Okay, so we're built up. We're now to Exodus 20, and this is the giving of the Ten Commandments. And it starts with, then God spoke. What does Genesis 1-1 start with? Right In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and it was void, and it was this and that. And then what? And he spoke, let there be light. God speaks words. So the commandments are words, but they're God's word. God's word. We have it here in the Bible. God's word. They're commandments because they're in the imperative form, but they're words. And he says, starts out with I. It's all about him. I am the Lord. Yehovah, your Elohim. Now remember, if you weren't here for the passage, we can't get into all the details, but God revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh I am, whereas the other nations just knew God as Elohim. And God saying, I am God, but I'm a specific God who's God over all gods with little g's. So I am Yehovah, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of labor. So how does God start off the Ten Commandments? He reminds them who he is, Yahweh, and what he has done. He says, I'm the God who rescued you. So this is why it's important. Many people try to obey God and they don't know him. It's like rules without a relationship leads to rebellion oftentimes. We as Christians know God. How do we know God? Because we know Christ, and we know his word. So we're not just obeying some foreign kind of distant God. We're obeying God, Yahweh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have to know who he is. And then he gives the very first commandment, which starts off with, You shall have no other gods, Elohim, small g, and it literally can read in front of me. So what does that mean? It comes from the word face. So what does that mean? So it means you shouldn't have anything or anyone in front of me. 
And Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must say no to yourself and take up your cross and follow me. So it begins with submission to the God of the universe. And it begins with realizing that if I want to be fulfilled and have a fulfilling, vibrant life, I can't have anything in front or above him. It has to begin with that. So it's about loyalty. Philip Graham Ryken says, Now get this straight, God is saying. I am the one and only God, and since I am the one and only God, I refuse to share my worship with anyone or anything else. God will not share the stage with any other performers. He refuses to have any colleagues. So Israel is rescued from Egypt. And there were many gods that Egypt worshipped. They worshipped gods of the fields, of the rivers, of the lights, and the darkness, and the sun, and the storm. But guess what? Israel probably started to worship those gods too, because they're in the midst of this stuff. Isn't there like, you know, we look at all our world, and we start to do what the world does, right? We start to worship their gods. God's saying, no, that's not how it works. This covenant starts with me, and it's all about me. So he takes a stand against the gods of Egypt, And he says, you shall have no other gods above me. Now, this loyalty for us continues to Jesus Christ. Because Titus 2.13 says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he is God. And there is no other name above his name because it says in Romans that if you confess with your... Now, here's that if, here's the premise. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Yahweh. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will what? Be saved. It's about loyalty and about the covenant and placing him first in our life as Lord and Savior, not just Savior. Second commandment, since Yahweh is the true God, he says, don't try to make other gods. He says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in a heaven above or an earth beneath or in the water or anything. So what he's saying is don't make gods out of the created things. An idol, this is called idolatry. What's an idol? An idol is a substitute for God, and therefore it's not God. It's a created thing rather than the creator. Now, idols can be false gods like they were in this time. They worship Baal and Molech, and basically is the worship of demons. Those are obviously created things too. And they should not be worshipped. What else can be a substitute for God? Money? People? How about food? Sports? Entertainment? How about gadgets? Can this be an idol? How about alcohol? Drugs? Music? You know, as a musician, that was my God before I got saved. And I had to give that away. Not give it away. I still do music, but it had to fall here. People, we have a whole show called American Idol. How about kids? Can our kids, can our own children become idols? Yeah. So if you want a life filled with regret and unfulfillment and discouragement and depression, then put those things in the place of God. If you don't want that kind of life, put God first. And then everything else will fall second and third and fourth and fifth and those kinds of things. One idol that I think has become incredibly inflated 
And it was not just today. When you look at the Greek culture and the Roman culture, it was a lot about the body, physique. And we can read in Romans 124 to 25, which says, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for degrading their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things, that's the key, rather than the creator who is forever praised. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't take care of our body. We should, but it shouldn't be what we worship. You are creation made by God. You have a body made by God. And the Bible says he created them male and female in the image of God. Your gender is a part of the image that God made you in, of his image. So when someone idolizes their body to the point where they desire to change the gender for which God created them, they are worshiping the created thing rather than the creator. That's sad. It should make us sad. That's not fulfilling. It never is. Anytime we worship a created thing, we are let down. And this is pure idolatry. So God goes on to explain this. He says, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And people go, wow, God is envious. No, it means that he loves us so much, he doesn't want us to do these things because we'll hurt ourselves. Visiting the iniquity of the father and the children on the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. So here's the thing. Idolatry can be taught and given to your kids and passed down from generation to generation because kids learn from what they see in their parents and in those in authority. But showing loving kindness, so here's the out. We don't have to be under that because God is a loving God. And those who keep my commandments, and the commandment for us is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Jesus did say, though, if you love me, you will obey my commands because if we love God, we will try to follow him and do what he says. Commandment number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It literally can mean do not raise up Yahweh's name for worthless purposes or for no good. So would you agree with me that God's name is holy? And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say what? Hallowed be thy name. We're not saying, God, we hope your name becomes holy. We're saying, I hope that your name becomes holy in my life. When we lift up his name in praise and worship, that's great. But when we degrade his name in different ways, that's not great. What are some ways that we degrade Yahweh's name? One way is if we make a vow in his name and break it. Or how about when we worship his name on Sundays, but the rest of the week we're diminishing and degrading his name? How about when we curse his name? James 3.9 says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with the same tongue we curse human beings who are made in God's likeness. When we misuse his name, we denigrate his reputation because the name is what people think of when they think of you. Like your name, they think of certain things. So if you're going around degrading God's name, that's how they will see God, right? And then commandment number four, we talked a lot about this last week, so we're not going to spend a lot of time. It's about the Sabbath, and it's a picture of creation. But just remember this, Hebrews chapter four speaks that the Sabbath that God offers us as New Testament believers is rest in Christ. We don't have to work for our salvation. We can rest in Christ. So here's the thing. The first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God. And it basically boils down, love God. Because if you love God, you will attempt to do these things for God. 
The next six deal with our relationship with other people. So it boils down to love others. If we love other people, we will try to act this way. So commandment number five starts with this. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord will give you. That's the promised land. He's speaking specifically to Israel. And it's important to understand, God now shifts from how we're dealing with him in relationship and we're dealing with others. And the first relationship he talks about is the family. That's incredibly important to understand because when the family breaks down, the nation crumbles. And remember, Israel's a nation. So the first most important relationship is the family. The parents are to love and protect their children like Yahweh does for his kids. And then the kids are to respect and honor their parents as Yahweh expects his kids to do with him. And it's a picture of this relationship with God and with others. Now, can we look around and realize that our society is quickly declining because authority is diminished? And not just parental authority, all authority. Read Romans 13. God puts authority in place. Augustine, I love how he says it. He says, if anyone fails to honor his parents, is there anyone he will spare? The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. It's literally never murder. The word is murder, not kill. A lot of people get confused. The Hebrew word resh means to murder, which is specifically putting someone to death improperly for selfish reasons. The King James Version is deficient because it reads, thou shalt not kill. Why is that problematic? Because a lot of the Old Testament is God telling his people to go kill the people in the land because it's evil. So God would be breaking his own commandment. It's murder. Thou shalt not murder. And people who fight in the military, how can they go and fight in the military if it says thou shalt not kill? No, that's a defense. You're in a defensive and offensive. It's not just going out and just murdering people. And we're under that authority that God has put in place. Next, commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. What's adultery? Adultery is sex with someone who's not your wife or husband. It ruins people and it ruins families. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. What's stealing? It's taking something that's not yours without permission. It upsets social order. Because remember, God's speaking to a nation. Commandment number nine, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What's false witness? Lying about someone, gossiping about someone. Social order depends on truthful speech. A judge cannot make a just verdict if someone is lying. Commandment number 10, you shall not covet. And then they list everything there, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your uh, neighbor's transportation vehicles, and things like this. What's covet? To crave or yearn for what belongs to someone else. It's a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something belonging to another. And it's the lust of the eyes in the Garden of Eden that committed the very first sin. It was coveting that the Apostle Paul came to the point where he thought he was blameless because he kept the commandments outwardly, but he said inwardly, I covet and I break the commandments. The Ten Commandments or the Ten Words cover all areas of life, our relationship with God and our relationship with others. This is why Jesus said this in response to the question, what is the greatest commandment? He said to them, read it with me, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And in the New Testament, it speaks of the law of Christ, which is about love. So if you love God, you won't break the first four commandments, right? Because you love God. If you love others, you won't break the next six. But here's the problem. No one can keep them. No one can keep them. Not even the religious leaders of Jesus' day who outwardly look extremely pious. Jesus referred to them like a whitewashed, rotten people. Inside, they're dead. So here's where we have to understand. We're going to end. Here's where we have to stand. Christianity is not a religion based on morality. Does that shock you? Because if Christianity was based on morality, we would fail. Christianity is a relationship based on faith. And then the morality comes. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out the Ten Commandments and he makes it even harder to keep. He says, even if you hold anger towards someone, you're committing murder. Even if you look at a woman with lust, you're committing adultery. Why? Because it's never about the behavior, so to speak. It's about the motive. It's about the heart. The Ten Commandments are there to show me that I need Jesus. In fact, Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore, the laws become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. What's a tutor do? Teaches you. The law taught Israel and the law teaches us, but it's to lead us to Christ. Now, end with finding yourself in the story. Romans 3.23, very famous verse. Read it out loud. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So although our intentions are good, our promises fall short. Our promises fall short. Israel wanted to keep the promise and they fell short. We fall short. But here's the thing. We should try to be promise keepers. We should attempt in our marriages to keep our vows, in our families to keep our vows, in our church to keep our vows and let our yes be yes. That's what Jesus said. Next, although our desire is holiness, our behavior falls short. If you have young kids, at first they look innocent, and then they turn an age where you go, what has happened? This is not the kid that I gave birth to. Because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even though Israel knew their identity, as we do as a holy nation, we fall short. And then the last one is, although God's will is perfect, we ourselves fall short. We are not perfect. The bad news is none of us can live up to the Ten Commandments. The good news is Jesus did. And here's what happened. Romans 8, 1 through 4, and I'm going to end with this. I'm reading in the New Living Translation because I love how it speaks this truth. It says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong or are in Christ Jesus. And because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in the body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Love God, 
love others. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us this morning how much you love us and how we are called to be different and set apart in a holy nation, but yet we fall short. But thank God that you, Lord Jesus, took our place on the cross as a substitute, the perfect sinless one, died in the place of an imperfect sinful sinner. And because of your blood that paid the price for the new covenant, we are not under God's wrath. We are under his grace. And we thank you, Lord, for that. Because that is how we can live and know that we have peace with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor David Bartowell's message reminds us that God speaks to us with hope and reason so that we can be his voice in this world. Please join us again for Make Me Your Voice, a ministry of the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. We would love to have you visit if you're in the area. For more information or to find our location, please visit thegateoc.com.